0: I'm Jason Harmon, and this is API Intersection, where you'll get insights from experienced API practitioners to learn best practices on things like API design, governance, identity auth, versioning, and more. Welcome back to API Intersection. I am super excited about today. I've been looking forward to catching up with Jay Jenna from PayPal. He and I worked together, you know, seven, eight years ago now. And as usual lately, we've got Adam Duvander as our co-host. Adam, tell us a bit about yourself. And then uh, Jay, give us a little inkling as to what you've been doing at PayPal the last seven years.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jason. I work at Every Developer, where we work with API companies to engage them around APIs, engage developers around APIs. And what's particularly interesting today to me is that... PayPal has a huge API program, which includes external and internal programs, and Jay seems to be the guy to be able to take us through the state of that program today and its
2: progression there. So, Jay, good to have you. Thank you, Jason. Uh, Adam, thank you for having me. Uh, We'll take you through everything that we have done at PayPal, and Jason, nice to talk to you again after so long.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I should point out to you, Jay has much more background than just PayPal. I know um, you did quite a bit of stuff at Cisco around kind of APIs and service infrastructure and all that too, right?
2: Yeah. So prior to joining PayPal, I was in Toshiba R&D Labs. I was doing the their private cloud where we had to integrate lo- with a lot of you know vendors, be it the storage provider or be the uh, compute provider. So which involve working on a lot of APIs, integrating APIs together and creating that solution for the customer. And prior to Toshiba R&D Labs, I was in Cisco where I was working in a group that was customer facing the network management services that, that Cisco provides as solutions or API to its customer and for partners to manage Cisco network on behalf of Cisco in Cisco's customer network. So API was the core theme there. Those are um, the most uh, important items for, I would say artifacts or services or products that could help partners manage the Cisco network effectively and keep it up all the time.
0: So I guess history lesson for listeners here. So I worked at PayPal on kind of the API program I guess it was like 2013, 14 kind of ish, which for me was very much the intro to what large scale API design looks like. Had the privilege to get to do, you know, API design as a dedicated function for a year or two. Jay joined my team at the time. And then when I went off to do some other things, Jay basically took the helm of that API design stuff and kind of took the torch that I'd lit and ran with it. I think I, I brought the perspective of like, you know, fresh naive guy on you know this is how we build good apis that kind of worked but guys like jay coming from you know much bigger enterprise background understood much more like the big enterprisey stuff you know that like i just wasn't from that world as much i had done some at and time and things like that but anyways jay and i have a lot of great history together you know i've touched over the years on some kind of open source http ietf kind of bits here and there And uh, it's just a pleasure to get to see where where you've taken all this. So one more history tidbit is, I guess it was probably 2012 to 2013-ish, was kind of the establishment internally at PayPal of a program called PayPal as a service. Right. Which basically was kind of the governance function, essentially. But I know since then, probably a ton of that's changed. and. What you see on PayPal's developer portal, as far as public APIs, is a tiny sliver of what the overall API portfolio looks like inside. So if you ever spent time at API developer conferences, it's the tip of the iceberg. That stupid slide that we all drink to. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Adam, you've definitely played that game before. Yep. point is that there's probably two sides to our discussion at the very least, which is kind of the internal governance function and the publishing aspect of that, the kind of, you know, sharing how it all works, and then the external developer program side, which is kind of a different deal and certainly more Adam's world than mine. So Jay, I guess taking us, you know, maybe through a little bit of how that stuff works as, you know, generalities and maybe let's start there and then we can kind of, you know, we'll poke at how things have evolved from that.
2: So when you and I were working together at PayPal, we were starting the API program, it was new, and the focus more was to break the monolith and get into a mode where make our the teams more agile and deliver faster. So we started with that, that approach and we ended up building a lot of APIs. So when we started, our goal was to how to establish a consistent set of guidelines for our developers to follow and, and develop APIs. And soon we realized being part of a central team, the more APIs we did, we could see that we were becoming bottleneck for other teams. And that used to slow other teams in terms of delivering within the timeline. So what what, our next focus was how do you federate that function, right? So what we did was we created a training program And uh, we hired people or nominated people from other domains, trained them to do the API design along with us. But what I learned (laughs) over the period is like you spend, say, six months to one year uh, training a person from a domain, then suddenly you realize the person has changed the role, right? Uh, The team, he started doing something else and uh, you lose that person, right? So... And it happened many times. So then my focus was, this is not a way to scale. So I started focusing on how do I scale this as a program? So establishing a process, a framework, set of guidelines, and the tooling was very important. The most important thing that we have done is creating that customer-centric view of your business. So what it means is what PayPal means to his customers why customers come to paypal what they want to do uh, when they think of paypal when we started we created a uh, business capability model which comprised of all the product capabilities that paypal offers to his customers so that defined the problem space for anyone both internally externally to develop apis Any developer, be it product manager for all stakeholders, looking at the business capability model, we make sure that every API that we develop, it delivers a business value to the customers. uh, What we call portfolio alignment. So we'll talk about all of these in all of those in detail. But uh, establishing the business uh, capability model was the first important step. Once we did that, then we. Establish the process, how to take an API from concept to launch, what it means to take an API from concept to launch, and what are those phases? What are those exit criteria, entry criteria for those phases? Uh, what it means to complete each phase, and who are the stakeholders and that are responsible for each of these phases. So what we define is what we call at PayPal is the API PDLC. What does PDLC stand for? the product development lifecycle, API product development life cycle. There we go. So we have like four phases, define, design, develop, and deploy. And exited entry for each of those phases is driven by API maturity model. So API maturity model essentially consists of a set of criteria that drives on what it means to complete a particular phase or what are those uh, criteria. So, at the end of it, when you complete all the phases and move go to make your API live, you are essentially assigned the API maturity for your API. So based on how you meet those criteria, your API qualities are sent. Now, the next thing was...
1: Before you get to the next thing, sorry, Jay, can you say the four stages again of the lifecycle?
2: Yeah, define, design, develop, and deploy. So define is... Our first goal always is how to build a framework where we we make everyone think from customer standpoint, bring that customer centricity to everything that we do in an API. Uh, the defined phase of uh, our lifecycle, the API PDLC just does that. So in the defined phase, there are artifacts that we expect, particularly from the product manager who knows the business in that domain, who is a, an expert? We expect an artifact where we, uh, where the product manager describes things like, why do we need this API? And if we build this API, how does it stand in that overall PayPal product portfolio? What business value does it deliver? What is the developer experience that is going to change because of this API or how the developer benefits? Who are the target audience? and what are the security privacy implications of this API. So this is the document our product managers provide when they propose the API. So the the defined phase starts with proposing an API and by providing all this documentation. Then it comes to the VPaaS team, which is the central team, looking at those documentation, those, those API proposals, then evaluating that API proposal, against our business capability model which defines our products the business functions then making a decision in collaboration with the with the domain architect and the domain product manager on whether we should do this api does this bring any business value and how how this is going to help paypal or the paypal product for portfolio overall I want to pause for a second
0: because i think there's some scale things to keep in mind across this timeline that you're referring to these things at the beginning of kind of the this program i know at the time there was something like 20 people working on this but when you break that down you've already mentioned there's product managers in that first step and i think this is somewhat unique in a lot of places you hear that like there's architects who are working with engineering teams on what the API is going to be. And uh, actually, a lot of the process stuff you're outlining, Eric Hogan, uh, who's run that at PayPal now for many years, actually published a pretty good series on InfoQ. Right. If you look for Untangling an API PayPal on InfoQ from Eric Hogan, there's a three-part blog series, which I've shared with so many people, that really walks through the outlines of at least what this looked like then. <laughs> which sounds like it hasn't changed huge. But going back to those kind of 20 people, a lot of that was just getting all of the kind of basic tooling for like a developer portal and the ability to automate some of the governance functions, all that. But I want to put in perspective that what you're describing today is four people, for, I don't know, what's the developer count at PayPal these days look like? Like how many total sort of engineers?
2: Maybe 4,000 developers, four and a half. I haven't kept the exact count, but somewhere around that or even more.
0: I want to just call that out as you're describing all this. This isn't a team of like, you know, 50 people. There's literally like a one to a thousand scale of that function, right? Right. Which I find remarkable. And to your point, this decentralizing kind of federating control to What's typically been domain architects historically, right? That that was one of the big ways to scale this. But I wanted to reel back. You said that, like, that hasn't been working as well. Is there some differing approach now?
2: Yeah, so the the approach I we took was we built a business capability model. The first year after you left Jason, what I did was touring the whole uh, world, right, Uh, across PayPal location, explaining our design standards, the guidelines, why you do your API this way, why it is required, what it means to our customers, taking these sessions across our PayPal location and across levels, right, from an engineer through the leadership. So that was more kind of evangelization on what exists, what doesn't exist, what it means to you, what it means to your development. While I was doing that, we rework uh, on our business capability model, make it solid. Uh, at the same time, we did something called common components. If you remember, mm-hmm. right? So common components, although the name sounds it's something common across APIs, evolve. Uh, it started with creating the common business entities for a domain. But it evolved, over the period, it evolved to describe all of the domains, uh, domain model. So while I was doing this evangelization across all paper location, I started working with uh, the domain product manager and domain architect to build this domain model. Over the period of a year, a year and a half or two, uh, we could build the domain model for all of our domains. So we established looking at our business capability model for and for all our business functions, we established a set of consistent business entities. So when you capture uh, a construct in your APIs, you know uh, what is that business entity you need to use. So that really laid the solid building block for our v2 APIs. Uh, So if you see our V2 APIs, we'll talk about that later. You see whether it's a bank or a car, all these business entities, right, across our domains, they are consistent, they are described the same. So the federation, because the federation didn't work, I was focusing on how, what, what are the things I should be doing to scale this function. Uh, so establishing that domain model was for, first thing along with the business capability model. Then I focused on tooling right? So, tooling was, so now we have consistent business entities across APIs, but we still need to uh, ensure that the styling that we need to use in our APIs, they are followed in the same way everywhere. So, Again, so you can do it manually, which is not scalable. You can even train people, right? Oh, awesome. <laughs> you, and you cannot serve to eat. <laughs>
0: Jay and I both manually reviewed every PayPal API for like six months with no tooling. Yeah, and I can tell you don't do it. It's terrible. Yeah.
1: Maybe give an example of what, when you say styling, what do you mean? And how do these domain models and business capability models help with that?
2: Yeah, so I'll talk uh, both of them. So when you say styling, we have API standards and API style guide. These are very objective set of guidelines, meaning it can be so. If you call saying your URI should be a plural noun for a resource collection, or you should emit only these set of 400, 4xx or 5x errors for a get or a post, right? So these are very objective errors. So the API standards and guidelines, these patterns, all these could be automated. So what we did was we built a tooling to automate all these functions, well, everything in API standard guidelines. So the API linter, which we started with just checking, uh, when we started, we are using GDT, Google Discovery Document. Later, we migrated to Open API. When we started, we had rules just to check, say, OpenAPI conformance. Uh, uh, rules but we evolved that linter to uh, to add everything that we wanted to do rule checks so be the documentation checks be the open api conformance checks our security checks our privacy checks right the performance related slo all those checks our domain entity, whether a domain entity is used the right way or not those checks right so when you when the validator or the API linter sees something, some word around currency or country code, it throws error saying you need to use, you know, the ppass common country code dot JSON for country, right? When it sees something around pay, it throws error saying you need to use a pay from say merchant common. So the validator, the moment you, in our process when a developer raise a pull request for the review, this API linter automatically runs on the pull request and creates those set of errors. It's integrated with the, even the Sonar QBay. That means unless you fix those errors, uh, you, you cannot merge, merge the PR. So all of our API standard guidelines and everything other groups in the company wanted to do, uh, like security or, you know, SRE team. So all those are enforced to the validator. And by the time uh, the developer fixes those issues, we are in pretty good shape with respect to that API. So our business entities are consistent, guidelines are met. So all we are looking at right now is the schema design aspect of your API. Things like uh, what is the granularity of the API, right? Is it going to scale? Looking at things like is the API emitting anything internal? So these things can be done by domain architects. So by following the guidelines, so we have a checklist or guidelines to check these other aspect, non-functional aspect of the API. So we could, uh, once we automated through tooling, the API standard checks and build the domain model, then the process became very lighter. So it was then me providing or helping these domain architects whenever they have questions around schema design. And this process works beautifully for REST. We could scale it to GraphQL. We are now scaling to events. And we have a, an API tooling blueprint that is standardized in PayPal. So you bring any protocol, new API protocol, we are building these tools. And we have a domain model. We have the business capability model. That doesn't change whether it's REST or GraphQL or events. So that remains consistent. And we have a tooling blueprint for what we call, I'll, I'll talk more. Uh, we have, again, divided that into two categories where you say SDLC tooling. In SDLC tooling blueprint, we have tools such as API linter, the API code gen, then uh, the API conformance tool. That is our HDLC tool. Then we have also standardized our patterns through a set of platform services. So we have a batch framework, right? We have uh, a framework uh, or service that can handle async request over HTTP, right? We have a file handling service. So all those patterns, uh, set of platform services. Uh, that we had developed for uh, REST, it forms that platform services blueprint, and we are doing the same for GraphQL for events. So we are, now we are in a state where the process framework, the tooling drives everything, and it uh, became way easier. I did not uh, uh, now worry about losing any any federated designer that I've trained because. The the things we used to train, we don't need to train on those things anymore because the the tool process and and the framework drives them. I can focus on the schema design aspects of the protocol and improving our standards and talking to our developers and and taking feedback and and improving um, all of this B tooling on the process framework. So that's how we have scaled. If you had to guess at the number of
1: issues that are caught automatically versus caught with the human review process,
2: what's that ratio look like? The number of issues that are caught automatically is like always 100% through this automated tooling versus manually. It requires someone to know everything, right? So if you are doing that as a full-time job, like say me or Jason that we were doing together, you, you need to review through the APIs, look at every aspect of the API.
0: I think Adam was talking more about kind of these objective versus subjective things. Yeah. So the objectives, sure, you can you can automate it all, Yeah. but there are subjective things that you're going to find. And I guess, what does the typical proportion look like on like, say, a domain architect finding some subjective factor versus how much is automatable?
2: I would say it's almost... Close to five to ten percent, not not more than that. Mm-hmm. Versus five years back, there was like hundred percent. The subject aspect was there, hundred percent. So, <laughs> because there was no domain model, nothing to depend on. So it was responsibility on the developer to think about how how they define a business and business entity. And as you know. If you change that developer, a new developer comes and de- develops the same API or some other API that requires same set of business entities, the definition to change. So it leads to a lot of inconsistencies and not a great developer experience. You are seeing 20, 30 definition of same business entity. That That is what happened to in our V2 API stack, where we didn't have that. But yeah, over over the period, by building the domain model, the subjective thing is almost gone right now so there is no scope for uh, anyone to even even if they try to accidentally do wrong things they, they cannot do the process the framework the controls are done so well
0: another interesting tidbit here you you've mentioned like you know v2 and and there's kind of like you know multiple versions that folks can go see publicly on the apis so, I mean, there's two paths we can take here. I say we set aside deprecation and come back to it. But the first one is like, there's internal external developer portal. Like what does that whole publishing kind of thing look like? I'm sure Adam's like frothing at the mouth to hear about this.
2: My goal was all, always to scale. So what we did was we build a platform service called API Metadata Service. So what API Metadata Service essentially does is it gives everything about your API. So our external dev portal or internal dev portal, they are just clients of this API. Uh, And we have various controls in our APIs. We have a number of vendor extensions in our APIs where we annotate saying this is limited release, right? Meaning this is only partner public where you don't see these APIs in our dev portal, right? And there are external set of APIs, then there are internal APIs. So within even an external API, There are fields that are internal, not exposed externally. So through these vendor extensions, we control the publication and through the API metadata, I'd say metadata API that we have, that gives you all these different views of your API. So an external dev portal can ask for a limited version of the API or external view of the API. By making a call to the metadata API, it will get a, a internal dev portal, the the PPAS, what we call PPAS dev portal within PayPal, it calls the API to get an internal view of the API. So we control the entire API publication or getting any data or APIs, even downloading the API artifact, the open API artifact through this metadata API. The metadata API serves everything at PayPal, so uh, not just publication, but for our tooling like SRE, they look into these to get the this SLO information to enforce the performance uh, right at runtime, monitor the performance. There are like regulatory folks, you know, looking at the API to get the data that they can, uh, you know, submit to regulators just by calling this API. Then. There are folks in quality control that that monitor the quality of uh, each platform and domain by calling this API and even raising, say, uh, what is said tickets, zero tickets, uh, with the team if their API maturity goes down, right, automatically. So. The API metadata service that we build serves what is the central uh, function to everything that we do, right? Uh, uh, be it publication or be it tooling, or anything of that sort.
1: And it sounds like outside of determining what's visible, that you treat external, internal partner APIs the same.
2: The guideline was to whenever we develop any API, think if as if it's going to be externalized, right? Uh, and it worked very well for us. I have seen so many times. I think Jason, even where that a team would come up with a proposal saying, "Oh, this is an internal API. There are no clients," and that assumption changes very quickly. And after two weeks, the same team comes back saying, "Oh, no, we have to now uh, expose this to partner. So. And what we avoided since the beginning was not to think of developing any API for your internal or external segment as such, but develop an API based on the business capability model, based on the business functions, right, uh, in a customer-centric way, and think about whether the internal or external visibility as an identity function of that API, right, and and that served us very very well. So all the APIs that I build are cu- currently used by our PayPal brands, uh, the customers, our partners, the same way, right? And, and we can confidently externalize any API without much of this use. It's been a
0: fascinating thing to watch, you know, in the years that I, I left PayPal to see the partner development that PayPal's gone through in the last, you know, five to seven years. You know, the stock price reflects some of that too, right? Like just huge number of massive partnerships. And, you know, they're all powered by APIs. And and I think that mentality in the early days that, and in some ways this is an extension of microservice thinking in general, is like you build the service around a customer-centric concept and make it easy to externalize. Because when that partnership opportunity comes, quite often it comes with a tight timeline and you're able to just kind of flip the switch or at least know what the gap is. This is where I guess back to that kind of maturity model thing, right? Like, is this a a very mature API or not? So yeah, fascinating stuff to watch from the outside now, and uh, interesting to hear that that's really stood the test of time and, and proved itself. Very cool. Man, you touched on so many things already. I'm like, it's just a smorgasbord of topics we could dive into. I guess the deprecation one is interesting for me too. Right. I know when I joined PayPal in like, I think it was 2013 or something, there was like APIs dating back to like 2001 that had never been turned off. I don't think people realize that. Right. It was in the ballpark of 15 years worth of different API form factors, soap and other made up stuff that was all still there. And my understanding is there's been a process of actually starting to deprecate things, and now you've moved from the V1 REST APIs to the V2. Right. What's the learning been on deprecating in that process?
2: Yeah, I think uh, the way the business we are in, right, and PayPal, it, it's very different from um, any other. Right. So, PayPal is all about trust, security, uh, and uh, we deal with money all the time. So when you're dealing with money, customers. If they are integrated with an API, they don't want to change, right? Because it's working and and the trust factor is there. So it's very hard to move a customer, um, be it a partner or merchant, if it serves the business purpose that particular merchant or or, or partner wants right? Because it deals with money, right? So it's very difficult to move. So I think the path we have taken is, yes, uh, we will evolve uh, our APIs, right? There would be different protocols uh, and we will adapt them for the new customers. we'll, We'll make sure that they are on to our new APIs for our old customers. If they migrate to the new major version stack, great. If they do not, we still have our V2 uh, APIs serve those view on customers through facade kind of layer, right? So we are still reducing our uh, tech debt, uh, the basically the infrastructure footprint and uh, routing all those traffic to our V2 stack. But at the same time, those the customers are partner we are integrated with our APIs before nothing changes for them, right? The business about money is like, it's very different, I think in this world um, yeah no one wants to touch the integration if it's working
0: yeah it's hard to over emphasize the like lifeblood connection that payment apis represent when it's processing all of someone's e-commerce yeah like the risk and change is just often huge so yeah it is super different and like business model all that too is just like if the payment goes through, we make money. Yes, that's the PayPal perspective, right? It's super simple from a monetization aspect. So if you do anything that stops that money from flowing, we stop getting paid. Yeah. So it's like super equitable relationship, but super hard to push change on. Yeah. But that's interesting to hear that V1 is essentially just a translation layer now, right?
2: Yeah, but I would like to say so. We have deprecation retirement. We are uh, internally we successfully do. We we migrate our developers from V1 to V2 and retire that completely. But externally, uh, this is the path I think we, we took. And over from our experience, we, we learned if you release an API externally, anything if you are thinking of deprecating retirement, it's very expensive and costly, right? So we think of designing the API that can live for 10 or 15 years, right? So establishing all the process and uh, all those was very important. While our APIs evolved, how can we reduce the uh, tech debt and still serve those uh, old customers, right? And without or without affecting any of those integrations and then serving the way through our new stack. We could still do that. We can still do that through our replication and worsening. And we follow them. It's, it's the way our customers integrate that, that thing change. So
0: I'd imagine in some of this kind of linting and tooling and kind of the detecting breaking changes has to be a big one, right? Uh,
2: Sorry, you're asking whether the change in tooling was was a big one in terms of the evolution?
0: I'm just saying like trying to put in perspective that in the span of the last seven years that you've been around, there's only been two major versions right? V1 and V2. Right, And so if someone's making a change to an API in a given domain that could be exposed to not only various internal domains, but to external partners, to external developers, that if you accidentally published a breaking change that could trigger a V3, that would be a huge deal. <laughs> so I'd imagine you you have detection methods to look for that early in the process, right?
2: Yeah, the API linter does that. Uh, because see even we don't deploy anything that is not there in the spec. So we treat uh, our API specification as the release artifact. That means uh, once the design review uh, is done where the linter runs the all the linting rules, the API specification is merged to the uh, in the API centralized API repo the api specific in artifact is released is labeled it's tagged it's released to a central location a repository then from there on you generate the code and that code is used out by the service so uh, you need to use that code only through the dependency right so all these are so well done the tooling literally you cannot do any wrong things here
0: all right. So Jay, we're friends. We've known each other a long time, but there's something I do to almost every guest is great. You spent, you know, all these years building all this giant, enormous, complicated stuff, and it's beautiful, magical, and you've automated almost everything. Now imagine you have to start from scratch. You're just getting started. What would be the first things that even at a very small scale, you would still think are the best places to start and the best places to invest?
2: Yeah, if I have to start again doing uh, this program, I, I think the first thing I would do is uh, establish uh, what it means to your customers, right? Uh, so establish that the business capability model, build the that domain model, and build the all the tooling, right? And so when you start, generally you have more f- access to more funding, more people. And that is when you can you can complete all these things, right? And I would say that the tooling uh, and, and this process and the framework will help you scale. So starting with all these and completing them will scale your program for years, right? To do that, you need to have leadership support so that they understand why you are why you are doing this, why you need to build this, and how it is going to benefit your business. So getting the leadership buy-in and uh, building the tools, establishing the process, the framework, and and building your customer-centric view of your APIs. So your API is your product, right? Uh, And you have to treat it that way. So whatever product you're delivering, that is your API, and, and your API delivers a business value.
0: Well, as a guy who works in a team of four to support thousands of developers, it doesn't surprise me that you didn't hesitate a second on what's essential (laughs) because there's not room for much else. I realized we didn't really touch on, you know, like business capability model sounds like a big complicated thing, but I know my look at learning this from my former colleague and your current one, Eric Hogan, is in its simplest terms, we're talking about kind of a collection of terms and definitions, right? Is there something more that you see to that?
2: Yeah, it's uh, if you are, if you know, about domain-driven design. So yeah, basically, it's it's set of terms and definition and your product function that you deliver to a customer.
0: So what would be a recognizable few capabilities out of you know PayPal public APIs? How would you you know what terms would you use to describe those?
2: So from PayPal standpoint, you see our dev portal uh, or your internal dev por- uh, internal dev portal. They are all discoverable through the business capability and function. So you see, you go to there are solution-centric views, and within solution, I think there are things like disputes, payments, building agreements. These these are the functions. Subscriptions. So, so subscription is a your, is a product that uh, helps with all of your subscription functionality. Payment does the payment processing. You know, dispute uh, handles all of the customer dispute stuff, and each of these capability map one on one with an API. It's interesting
0: as you're describing, and I'm browsing through the PayPal developer reference, and you're basically saying that the left-hand navigation are PayPal's core capabilities, right? Yes. And it's funny; I, I always forget that it's that's a really simple way to explain it. Yeah. Right? Is think about how would people navigate to find the things that you do in the simplest terms?
2: You have to think about uh, in a customer-centric way. So why your customers come to you, right? So they come to you because they want you to solve uh, a business problem, right, for them. So when they come to you, they should be able to easily discover the capability that solves their problem. So if if, uh, our dev portal, whatever, doesn't help a customer navigate to a capability that solves their uh, business problem, then the documentation fails. So establishing that business core set of capabilities uh, which makes the business capability model doesn't only help how you build your APIs, how you you model APIs. It helps also for your customer to discover your APIs. It creates a problem, it defines a problem space for everyone in the company to think in a customer-centric way. That is the I would say if you are building the API, that is the most important thing that you should do to begin with. So if you do that, you always deliver a, a API to de, uh, build an API to deliver a business value, then building API to do a thing, right? Which is which is very different.
0: Yeah, how do you describe the thing? That's what we hear from, I think, every guest who does, you know, the kinds of things we do. It's like, what are the things and how do you, how would you, you know, what's the word you would use to describe it? I would note too that some of the navigation, like for instance, if I click into subscriptions, I see things like plan. So there's this notion of, I guess, sub capability. How deep does that, you know, kind of tree go?
2: Yeah, so there is the L1, L2 and L3. Capability, right? So at the L1 uh, level, you have a very high level of view of your basically all of your products. So PayPal does a checkout, uh, does invoicing, dispute, and payment. These are uh, and say risk uh, compliance. But say within compliance, there are things like uh, policies, which is the L2 capability. Everything that you need to implement, uh, you know, build around policies falls into that L2 capability, right? Then there are regulatory restrictions, right? Where you uh, you build a set of APIs to meet uh, your regulatory restrictions, uh, related functions within a compliance. And same with, say, risk. Within risk, you can do, say, financial decisions, you also... Make profile identity related profile decisions, right? When someone is logging in, you want to ensure that it says the proper login. So, profile decisions, financial decisions, uh, these are L2 capabilities. And within those L2 capabilities, the next level is L3, which really defines your business functions in that L2 capability. What you really do when you say plan, right? What you really do when you say financial decisions so what 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 is that business function so our api is the internal dev portal you wouldn't see um, externally but internal dev portal our developers can navigate through any of these routes so they can start with the l1 and from there they can go to l2 and from there l3 uh, either way right
0: are there exceptional cases where there's l4s and fives and six and seven and so on
2: no uh, I think the pretty much at L3 we are like pretty much cover everything, right? So L3 is like really the leaf of of your capability map. It's a fascinatingly simple concept
0: though that I think we haven't really covered with other guests. And I think a lot of people do this is it's it's kind of an artificial constraint. The way I always tell people is like, if you can't describe something in three layers, you probably don't understand it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it applies both in terms of navigating to find things in a browsing sense which is in some ways what we're describing but this can translate down into how architecture is built out and all kinds of things uh, so it's, it's fascinating that if you you let hierarchy run wild it implies that it's going to be difficult to comprehend
1: one of the thing jay that you said for advice to folks was to be able to get buy-in from leadership and It seems to me that starting with these business capabilities is a great way to do it because it's grounding something that could be this really complex technical thing into the actual way that customers use
2: what you build. And so I think that's a really great place to start. When you're talking to leadership, when you talk in terms of what it means for the business, everyone can understand, right? Versus saying, I want to build a great API for what? Uh, I think starting from business modeling is, is a way to go and get uh, buy-in from everyone in the company, right? Uh, because everyone can relate to what we, uh, the work you are doing and um, and you can also, they can mo- monitor the, the investment that we are making into that. So yeah, everything becomes easier.
0: Yeah, it's like so many things that we are talking about here. It's like, it's so simple, right? Like you go, make a list of the things that your company does. And you think like, oh, that's pretty straightforward. Describe it in three levels or less. Yeah, right. That's single words if you can.
2: Very straightforward,
0: yeah. Takes years. <laughs>
2: it's so simple and... <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. I mean, even in small organizations, it can be hard. You know, everybody has a different idea of what it means. But I think this to me is is where it's not actually an API design thing. This is platform design. Right. How are we going to look across all the things that we do and describe them in one simple to understand way? Yes. And that drives everything else. Right. The inverse Conway maneuver thing. So anything that you'd like to kind of um, point folks to to look at to go kind of check out any of the latest news from from PayPal?
2: I hope uh, the HTTP working group, the API working group that have re- been recently formed. From- uh, look into these aspects. So some of the tooling, uh, the SDLC tooling, the platform tooling, these are like very set patterns and even the API metadata. Why do you even take uh, you know, or re- restart every time when you switch API protocols to build a new developer portal? Why not standardize that through something like your API metadata service, right? Many of these things I feel can be standardized in the industry, so, if we do that, our tooling, right, all the tooling that these API providers do, it just becomes easier for customers to adapt, to switch, change, right, easily, right? Everything becomes portable. So, yeah, look, I would say look forward to articles, the publications, or uh, that we will open source in coming months. And uh, I would say if S- the STDP working group there, if we can standardize all these things, it will help uh many companies developers the tool providers right everyone it will create more choices uh, for everyone
0: fantastic I will we'll definitely keep an eye out and uh, listeners i guess you know pay attention to paypal and the http working group well thanks guys it's been an absolute pleasure
2: thank you jason thank you adam nice talking
0: good to see you both and listeners thanks again thanks for listening If you have a question you want to ask, look in the description of whichever platform you're viewing or listening on and there should be a link there so you can go submit a question and we'll do our best to find out the right answer for you.